Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Every great person in the Bible, if there's more than three verses written on their life, we learn they were objects of ridicule and scorn and misunderstanding. And when someone criticizes you and demeans you, it doesn't mean you're on the wrong road, it means you're on the right road. That's what it means. It means you're doing the right thing. You're living passionately and zealously for God, and God's heroes are always zealous. They're zealous for what's right. play the game would you rather it goes like this would you rather lounge by the pool or by the beach would you rather always be 10 minutes late or 20 minutes early would you rather have a full phone battery or a full tank of gas well today on focal point pastor mike fabarez asks us a would you rather question of his own would you rather be popular or right a simple question with a not so simple answer well here's pastor mike with tips for zealots You ever noticed how being right and being popular don't always go together? As a matter of fact, it's often a choice between the two, isn't it? My apologies to all of you who are voted the most popular by your yearbook committee. Any of those here this morning? Don't raise your hands. It's embarrassing because I'm going to slam you. But uh, <laughs> let's at least admit it probably wasn't the highlight of your spiritual walk with Christ. Because being right and being popular, they don't always go together, and oftentimes it's a choice between the two. And all you do is look at Christ's life as an example. I mean, no one here, I hope, is going to argue that Jesus Christ was right. He was not only right, he was always right. How popular was he? Well, I suppose he had his moments, but ultimately, at the apex of his ministry, they nailed him to a cross. And the crowd stood there with a fist raised up and said, crucify him. I don't like him doesn't fulfill our expectations. He's not what we had hoped he would be. As a matter of fact, when you see in Christ's ministry these pockets of times, these periods where he was popular, really popular, like in Luke 14 when it says large crowds began to follow Christ, those were the times when he turned to the large crowds and he gave them some of the most scathing and raw, edgy sermons he'd ever given. And he said, maybe you don't understand. Here's what I'm all about and here's what the truth is. Because truth and popularity don't always go together. And you see, when it comes to being popular, Christ has forever condemned us to uh, abnormality, if you will, when he said to us, if you really want to be a follower of Christ, if you want to do what is most important in my rule book, in my agenda, then love the Lord your God with half of your heart and half of your... Is that what he said? No. That's wrong, isn't it? He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Now, think about that. Really, all your soul, all your heart, all your strength, all your mind. If, you, if I said to you, I've got a friend who loves UCLA football with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his strength, and all of his mind, you'd say, especially if you're a USC fan, right? You'd say, something's wrong with that. He's a fanatic, right? If he really does love something that much, he's extreme. And, you know, he's probably the guy painting his body, you know, the school colors or something on, in the crowd. He's, he's, he's just, he's fanatical. He's a zealot gone too far. So Christ has said to us, you know, it's not about being moderate. It's not about being 
normal. As a matter of fact, if you're a Christian here this morning and you really know what that means, to put your hope and trust in Christ and to crown Him in your heart, Lord of Lords, then you know that today, I hope you know, that you can forever give up on being normal because you'll never be normal in this world. They're not going to say, hey, that's great. We, we really like that. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6 as we continue our series in the life of David and we see that he finally got it right. He consulted the Word of God and he said, I'm going to align my life with God's Word. I'm going to be carefully obedient. And when he was, he was doing it right and he felt right about it and God was happy and everything was good, right? Well, yeah, except for those sitting on the sidelines watching. And they thought, you know what, that is too extreme. Look at it with me in the middle of this chapter. In verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, you'll remember David had purposed to bring this symbol of God's presence into the middle of this new capital city, the city of David, the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem. And it would forever be there as a symbol of God's presence in the Old Testament. But as he was doing this, he proceeded to do it in the wrong way. God spanked him, and then he got it right. Three months later, he tries again, biblically, carefully, and obediently putting the ark in the city of David, the way God instructed it to be done. And now he's happy, and he's rejoicing. And the text says that as he entered this city, Michael, the daughter of Saul, and it's interesting they call her that, that's who she is, but she's also David's first wife, David's wife of his youth, the one that he sought after in the deal with Ishbosheth, if you remember that whole story. This was his wife, not just the daughter of Saul. She watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping, it says, and dancing before Yahweh, she said, what a devoted and wonderfully committed husband I have, and I'm so glad I'm married to that guy. All right, you see that there in verse 16? No, you don't see that, because that's not what she says. Matter of fact, the text just says she despised her husband there, in her heart. And I don't like that. Just a little too much for me. I, I don't like the fact that he's so into this. And she is set up now as someone despising this guy for doing the right thing in the right way and having an unbridled enthusiasm about it. And she's ready to unleash her criticism and her opposition to the one that she should have, I suppose, if she knew what it was all about, she should have been rejoicing in and thankful for and excited about. Instead, she's about to criticize him. Keep your finger here and turn over to Matthew chapter 10, first book in the New Testament. Let me show you that Jesus had warned us that this would be the norm. It wouldn't be the exception. It would be the rule. And in David's life, he's going to find out that when he does the right thing in the right way with the kind of enthusiasm and zeal that God has called him to have, he's not always going to be well received. As a matter of fact, the people standing on the fringes of the committed People standing on the fringes of the people of God, sometimes found even in his own house, are going to look at him and say, you know what, this is too much. This is radical. This is fanatical. We don't like this. You need to ratchet back just a little bit. The text says, if you drop your eyes down to verse 24, notice how Jesus sets it up. He says, a student is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. Think through that paradigm, right? Got a pupil, got a teacher, got a servant, got a master. He says, it's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the master, or the servant rather, like, like the master. And then he says, you know, that's what it's all about. The goal is to strive to know as much as your teacher, to be as respectable as your master. Well, if the head of the house, in this case himself, is being called Beelzebub, a real nasty first century word for Satan, he says, then uh, how much more the members of his household? 
In other words, you expect to really get off the hook easier than me. If you and I today call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ, we've got to remember that our leader, the one that we say is the king of our life, was one that was nailed to a cross. They spit on him. They beat him. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They misunderstood him. They hated him. And Jesus says, you know, if they hate me, what makes you think they're going to they're like you? He said, now, if you're of the world, this is how it's put in the Gospel of John, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but since you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, he says, put your helmets on because you're in for trouble. As a matter of fact, the apex of one of the passages in the book of John, he says, you know, in this world, here's what you can count on. You will find, do you know the passage? In this world, you will have tribulation. Not fun, not happiness, not acceptance, not popularity. You're not going to be accepted if you live the Christian life the way you're supposed to. Now, it's a whole other message to talk about some of you who name the name of Christ and have just a fine time at work. <laughs> you know, you're voted employee of the month. You're the life of the party. Everybody likes you. If that's your role in your worldly setting out there in the world, something's wrong with your Christian life. Because here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be popular, right? You know that verse? No. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, do you know it? Persecuted. That's the norm. As a matter of fact, the more godly you live, the more persecution you'll probably receive. Now, I'm reluctant to use the word persecution because we live in a pretty cushy time in Western America. And though the means by which people criticize, ostracize, and oppose Christians today may not be throwing us to the lions, you certainly recognize, don't you, that the spiritual status of the world hasn't changed. Those who are not devoted to Christ don't like us a whole lot. And it may not be now that we're being lined up against brick walls behind some government building and being shot at, but we are the object of ridicule in our society. You recognize that, don't you? You stand on the Word of God. You hold up the morals of God as absolutes. You say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ, this invisible person you've never seen before, right? This history person, this figure from the past who you say died on a cross and rose from the grave. You recognize the world's going to say, mm, it's not real. I mean, that's a nice thing if you need to lean on some crutch to teach your kids morals, but you're really not going to be passionate about that, are you? Well, if you are, you're in for trouble. And the text says sometimes that trouble can even be as close as your own family. Drop your eyes down to verse 34 in that passage. He sets it up. He says, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Throw that one on your Christmas card this year, right? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is hard stuff for people to swallow. Christ says, I'm here not to make things comfortable for you. It's not going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to your social life. It's going to be hard. It's going to be division here going to come and divide things up like a sword divides things up. Because when people get committed to me, there's going to be problems, animosity, opposition. Look at it, verse 35. I've come to turn, in a very real and practical sense, a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And in some worst-case scenarios, note at verse 36, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And I've got to say that I'm fortunate enough not to have that as a reality, at least under my own roof. But some of you are here today with the pain of recognizing the practicality of that passage, aren't you? Because you're committed to Jesus Christ. That's why you're here. You love Him. You serve Him. You, you worship Him. But there are people that live in your home that really think you've gone too far. And in a real sense, your commitment and devotion to Christ has caused this. 
I'm just here to encourage you. That's normal. That's normal because the people that don't share our devotion to Christ, the Bible says, are going to be critical. They're going to provide opposition and struggle and pain in our lives. And I'm real sorry about that, but it's a reality for many of us. And some of us, it's not our, our husband or our wife or maybe our adult children or our parents, but for some of us, it's our siblings, our best partner at work or our co-workers or the neighbors in our neighborhood or the people we'd like to be accepted by in that group that we hang out with, they don't care for our radical devotion to Christ. And because of that, it creates animosity. And sometimes in the worst case scenarios, like in David's life, he's got a wife who sees him doing probably what is the most godly thing he's ever done, bringing the symbol of God's presence into the middle of the city in this tent that he's pitched for it with all this celebration and worship. And she sits there and says, this guy, he's gone too far. And she despises him for it. But it's the most righteous thing he's ever done. Back to our passage, 2 Samuel 6, with the sobriety of knowing that this is not an exemption that we have, that in our family it'll always be good. It won't always be good. Sometimes we come to Christ and our spouse doesn't, and it creates problems. Sometimes we come to Christ, we're teenagers and our parents don't get it. Sometimes we're parents and our teenagers don't get it, and there's problems and conflict and strife. I just want to tell you, don't be surprised by that. It happens to David, and Jesus said, don't be surprised. That's the first thing, if you're taking notes, by the way, before we look any farther in 2 Samuel 6, jot it down. Don't be surprised by critics. Don't be surprised by critics. There's going to be critics in your life. And I put it that way because I'm preaching to, you know, the 20th century American crowd, and that's probably as harshly as I can put it in our day, although some of our brethren around the world are being killed for their devotion to Christ. We are just suffering ridicule and persecution in the mildest sense of the word. But nevertheless, it's a reality, and we all share it. We don't get the promotion. We're not in with the boys. We, the partners don't you know, see us like the next guy. And all these things happen in our lives because we just have this thing in our life that's too important. It's called Christ and our passion for truth and all of that alienates us in many circles. In the text, I want to show you some things that may have added to this conflict. Look at the next verse, verse 17. As they brought the ark of the Lord, they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And maybe that was a little source of marital conflict. David had been out there overseeing this project to build this big tent when he wasn't, you know, repairing the cupboards in the, man, in the palace. I don't know. But she obviously had to put up with a husband whose focus was somewhere else. Not only that, David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Those were the most costly of the offerings, by the way, and he offered those to the Lord. One possible understanding of the grammar in our passage last time was that every six steps of the journey, when he picked it up from the house of Obed-Edom to the place where he put it in the tent in Jerusalem, it was perhaps a reality that he sacrificed offerings every six steps of the journey. I've read books that have added up what that might have cost in that day to do that, and it's a remarkable, costly endeavor. And so perhaps she's watching the royal treasury get milked here by a guy who's so passionate about God, he's giving all of his energy, all of his time, and much of the money of the family away to the causes of God. And I'm sure that heaped on a lot of animosity in their marriage. And after he had finished that, look at it, verse 18, sacrificing burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he goes and blesses the people in the name of Yahweh Almighty, and he gave them a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of the Israelites. Can you imagine 
You know, Michael's sitting there with the checkbook registry saying, oh my goodness, what's he doing? Stop it, right? Giving away all of this stuff that could have been used for their own comfort and their own progress personally and domestically. He's given it away. You see, people that are radically committed to Christ, they know that whatever God demands of their time, of their resources, of their money, of their energy, they give it. Oh, it's a sacrifice, and sometimes in the Christian life it's a struggle and it's a pain, but we do it because we love God. And when we do, people close to us look by and they say, that's too much. Why do you do that? You really give that much money to the ministry? You really give that much money to the church? You really spend that many nights at your church? You really serve in those programs and they don't pay you for that? We don't get it. And then if you're committed to God, you're called to be committed to God's people, so much so that the Bible says you're to lay down your life for other Christians. Think that one through. We'd call someone a fanatic who said, I'm so into this football team, I'd die for them, right? You'd say, you're a nut. Well, the Bible says this group, this group that you're a part of called the local church, how high is the standard? You're called to be able and willing to lay down your life for me, and I'm called to be willing to lay down my life for you. That's fanatical. And when your spouse or your friends or your co-workers recognize that you're willing to, 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 to lose a, a night of sleep, to go sit by someone's bedside in a hospital who is just a part of your church, you don't even know them that well, or you're going to give of your, your resources for a couple over here you don't even know that well that's struggling financially, and you start doing all this stuff, they're going to say, you're crazy. Why do you do that? It's too much. And I'm sure all of this added to the animosity that existed between the guy who was doing the right thing and the critic on the sidelines saying, I don't like this. I don't like the way you're doing this. You're going too far. Can't you ratchet back? Can't you do Christianity in, a, in some kind of moderation? Why do you have to go to the extreme? David knew he had to because the command to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind was not a New Testament command. It was one that Jesus repeated. It existed in the law and the Torah, and David knew it's all or nothing in the Christian life. It's all or nothing in serving God. And he gave his all, and when he did, people criticized him. How bad was it? Look at what she says in the next verse. David's stoked. He's just done the most godly thing he's ever done. He's been generous to God's people. He's been sacrificing burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He's got the ark placed in this great new place. They've been singing. They've been dancing. They've been worshiping. They've been doing all this great stuff. He comes home to bless his household, and there's his wife, daughter of Saul, his first wife, the wife of his youth. And she came to him and said, bouncing her foot on the floor with her arms crossed, I'm quite sure, my how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. <laughs> you have really done it now. Look at you. Wow, you were just really royal out there today. Laying aside your crown and all your royal robes in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. You were a joke, man. What are you doing out there? You lost all your dignity. You're giving everything away. You're dancing around before God like, what are you crazy? And she lays into him. Do you think that was painful for David? You bet it was. Perhaps it's painful for you. I don't know if it drives home as closely as your own family. But if it's not your family, you and I can identify, can't you, with people that just don't get it who are in your workplace? Perhaps in your neighborhood? When your passion and concern is always to turn the conversation back to God, when you're always inviting them to church, when you're always giving out stuff that points them back to the Bible and God's truth, when you stand up in the lunchroom and say, no, that's wrong because the Bible says it's wrong and they're doing this behind your back because they think you've lost it, you know what that's like. And when you hear of it, it's painful. But all I'm trying to tell you is it's expected. 
because every great person in the Bible, if there's more than three verses written on their life, we learn they were objects of ridicule and scorn and misunderstanding. Get used to it. It doesn't mean you're on the wrong road because that's how we normally interpret pain. If it hurts, I must be doing something wrong. No, you're going to have painful criticism in your life and it'll probably happen this week if you stand up for Christ in some area of your life and when someone says something against you and when someone criticizes you and demeans you, it doesn't mean you're on the wrong road. It means you're on the right road. That's what it means. It means you're doing the right thing. You're living passionately and zealously for God and God's heroes are always zealous. They're zealous for what's right. They're zealous for what God says. They're zealous to serve and give and sacrifice of themselves. What was David's response? Next verse. David says to Michael, Look, I understand your concern, and maybe I did get carried away, and I'll try and ratchet back, and I'll spend a little less time at the tabernacle, and, uh, you know, maybe we can recoup some of that cash, and you're right. You know, if I'm going to live in this world and fit in, I better, I better slow down a little bit. I got carried away. Forgive me. Please. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. See all that there in 21? No great thing about David is he doesn't back down. This is before Yahweh. And he throws in some stuff. I don't know if it really belongs here. I mean, you know, he puts in his jab. Look at the next phrase. Who happened to choose me <laughs> rather than your dad or anyone from his house? Pointed me the ruler over the Lord's people. Okay, well, I don't know if that was the best way to put it, but I like what he does. Last phrase of verse 21, I will celebrate before the Lord. I'm going to offer up my offerings. I'm going to give things to God's people. I'm going to worship. I'm going to get carried away. I'm going to get carried away. Take a note. That's the second thing we can learn from David. Not only should we not be surprised by critics, which he didn't seem to be. Second thing you and I need to learn is not to be swayed by their criticism. David stands resolute. Don't be swayed by criticism. I know you're going to want to, and you're going to want to say, perhaps I did get carried away, and maybe I didn't have to state the truth so boldly, and maybe I shouldn't have been so firm in that meeting, and maybe I shouldn't have nixed that project because of that moral concern, but you, you don't go there. We're learning how to get carried away for God with Pastor Mike Fabares here on Focal Point. Our message is titled, When Jesus Freaks, Meet the Respectable Americans. If you'd like to listen to the complete message without interruption, go to focalpointradio.org. Focal Point is committed to exploring and proclaiming the depths of Scripture to those in need of God's truth. Thank you for investing so we can continue impacting lives for Christ across the country and around the world. To give during this critical season, call 888-320-5885 or donate online at focalpointradio.org. Recently, we received an email from Caleb, who encouraged us with this message. I just want to thank Pastor Mike for expanding my knowledge as I walk through this journey. I'm 21 and have been going through a lot of adversity. I've been diagnosed with ADHD, anxiety and depression, and bipolar 2 disorder. I fell into a deep, dark place. I prayed for guidance, and I came across his sermons, and the lessons were about when life is tough. I have felt relief and found joy through God's Word, and I have become stronger and more confident in myself. Thank you for saying what God wanted me to hear. I feel calm and more relaxed with the world because I know that there's a place that's far better than this one. Keep up the good work. 
Well, thank you for sharing your story, Caleb. And we pray that more people just like you will discover freedom and confidence through a relationship with God. Your donation helps keep Focal Point on the air, reaching thousands like Caleb with the light and truth of Christ. In addition to producing this daily program, Focal Point also provides biblical tools like weekly devotional emails and practical Bible teaching resources. This month's featured book is called The Essential Scriptures. To request your copy of this reference handbook, call 888-320-5885. A copy is yours when you give a year-end gift to Focal Point. Or go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again next time as we continue learning tips for zealots. That's coming up Thursday on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.